Good afternoon. Welcome to This Week in Sustainability. My name is Felicia Etzcorn. I'm a professor of chemistry at Virginia Tech, and I have my co-host. Hi there. I'm Jamie Ferguson. I am a chemistry professor at Emory and Henry College in Southwest Virginia, where we've got a little snow on the ground. I've got a lot. I've got six inches here. It's beautiful. So today we have Martin Wolf from Seventh Generation, and he's the Director of Sustainability and Authenticity. Seventh Generation was started in 1988, and it's in, located in Burlington, Vermont. So I bet you have a lot of snow up there, Martin. Definitely so. We have a lot more than six inches, and I understand the storm that just gave you six is going to give us several more here also. So cross-country right. skiing for those that enjoy it. So we're going to talk today about the sustainability of basically all, I, as much of seventh generation products as Martin wants to talk to us about. And he's, he's in the chemistry side of it. So we'll talk about the sustainability of cleaning products and paper products. Um, aqueous cleaners and laundry detergents and and the disinfecting power of natural products versus petroleum products. We'll also talk about educating consumers and targeting, you know, maybe in social media or um, how, how do you go about educating consumers as to um, seventh generations, the power of using natural products and, and sustainable products um, for the consumer. All right, so first we'd like to have Martin introduce himself and tell us a little bit about his educational background. Sure, so I'm a chemist by training. I got my baccalaureate from Worcester Polytechnic Institute in Worcester, Massachusetts and my master's degree from Yeshiva University in uh, New York City, which is also my home. I grew up in Brooklyn uh, and uh, started my career with a company called Seba Geige Agrochemicals, uh, which is located in Westchester, New York, doing work on the fate and uh, metabolism of pesticides. So while it wasn't a, uh, uh, how shall I say this? It, it wasn't chosen as my career path. I started very early on looking at chemicals in the environment. Uh, when that company moved to uh, Greensboro, North Carolina, uh, after several years, I decided I really was a Northeasterner, so moved back to Massachusetts, uh, where I worked for a company called Thermo Electron where I managed a laboratory that looked at certain types of carcinogens in the environment. So the theme continues. Um, and I left Thermo Electron after several years uh, to start a company with um, one of my professors at Northeastern University working on, um, again, a laboratory to look more broadly at chemicals in the environment. Uh, this is when EPA was starting to do uh, large-scale investigations, like, well, it's a little bit after Love Canal, uh, but in Massachusetts, we had an issue with uh, drinking water in a town called Woburn, uh, drinking water and groundwater contamination in South Attleboro. And so uh, for about a decade, I was CEO of a company called Cambridge Analytical Associates. And when... We sold Cambridge Analytical. Uh, I became an unemployed CEO. And what many unemployed CEOs do is become consultants. Seventh Generation was one of my clients. Uh, and after consulting with them for uh, several years, they invited me to move to Burlington and join the company full time. So that's a little bit of my history and how I got to Seventh Generation and Burlington, Vermont. Oh, that's interesting. I actually worked on making radio labeled carcinogens and toxins for a group at Midwest Research Institute in Kansas City after my bachelor's and before I went to graduate school. 
in the early 80s. So we have something in common. I also made radio, la- I made radio labeled pesticides, <laughs> some of which may have been carcinogenic. Uh-huh. <laughs> Interesting. So our first topic is just to revisit this idea that risk is a function of hazard and exposure. And so the typical green chemistry issue is that if you are always fighting to limit exposure to chemicals, to to bad chemicals, I should say, I I make a a distinction between good and bad chemicals because everything in the in the universe is chemical. So oxygen is a good chemical. Sometimes it's a bad chemical. So we, we have to distinguish between good ones and bad ones. But basically, exposure to toxins is, we've always addressed that as trying to just limit the exposure. And that's really tricky when it comes to consumers. So Martin, what do you do instead? at seventh generation. Risk, as we just said, is a function of the hazard of the chemical and your exposure to it. And traditional, or I should say conventional chemical companies say that if you control the exposure, then you don't have to worry about the hazard as much. So you have those two levers to pull in controlling the risk. Seventh generation and and many uh, companies say, well, that may be true. We really can't control the exposure as well as we would like. Consumers are extremely inventive when it comes to our products. They use them in ways we never intended. (laughs) (laughs) Tide pods. Exactly. teenagers. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Or they'll use a lot more than just our brand of detergent, or they'll use many different products that may contain the same chemical. So their exposure is much greater than we might calculate looking just as a, at our product. So for all these reasons, we think rather than focus on exposure as conventional companies have done, we should focus instead on using chemicals that are less hazardous. And by reducing hazard, we reduce the risk of harm. So that's the approach that we and other uh, companies are trying to take today. Uh, And and the disadvantages of that, sometimes the supply chains aren't well developed so that they cost a little bit more, uh, or they uh, may not have quite the tailoring to function that a synthetic chemical might have. So while they may be a little less effective. You can often offset that in other ways. But our main objective is to reduce the hazard so that we reduce the risk of harm. Great, thank you. I totally agree. That That is the main goal of green chemistry is to reduce the hazard, to eliminate the risk rather than trying to control exposure. Because even when you control exposure during the production at a chemical plant, say, accidents happen, there's waste products that leave the plant, and eventually everything gets out, gets loose somehow. You mentioned Love Canal earlier. So they tried to just put it in barrels and bury it. Well, that doesn't work. And that's that's the issue. So Martin, I, I, I have, you know, gotten on online and watched a, a few YouTube interviews, you, you know, you do a great job of outreach uh, for, for seventh generation. And, and uh, I've heard you talk about seventh generation avoids use of uh, volatile organic chemicals um, as one of the, you know, when we start to minimize these hazards in our chemical products, we need to identify what are the hazardous compounds. And so VOCs uh, being a very big one, um, so I, I think you have to do a lot uh, more with with the solvent water than probably a lot of cleaning products manufacturers do. Um, so what sort of challenges do you run into in making things more, uh, in cleaning products more aqueous? 
So first, you're exactly right. Uh, VOCs present a route of exposure, inhalation, that you don't have with substances that obviously are not volatile. So we don't permit VOCs in seventh generation products, except of course for fragrances, because consumers tend to like fragrances. Uh, but we also offer free and clear uh, products that don't have any fragrance in them. I just have to throw one interesting fact to you. Most people think the largest source of uh, hydrocarbons and VOCs in an area like Los Angeles is the automobile. In fact, it's personal care and home care products, consumer products. So the chemicals that come out of your deodorants, your cleaning products, mm -hmm. uh, uh, your skincare products, those VOCs actually add up to more than the hydrocarbon emissions from your car. I find that an amazing wow. fact. Which just blows you away. It does. It, it, and I try to tell people, you know that new car smell? That's VOCs. You know, you know that clean house smell? That's VOCs. And VOCs can also be natural products like pine resin can is a VOC. Those, those terpenes. Exactly right. And uh, so, so VOCs are not only found in, in uh, man-made products. Uh, the Smoky Mountains in Western North Carolina and Eastern Tennessee get their name from the photo-oxidative uh, properties of the terpenes that are coming out of the uh, pine, spruce, fir, and other uh, trees in that region. But they can present a particular hazard in, in cleaning products. So there are VOCs. One well-known one is 2-butoxyethanol used in many uh, surface cleaners and especially glass cleaners because it promotes one removal of uh, certain soils because of the solvency of, of this uh, material. Um, and it also promotes more rapid drying so that you get a streak-free finish. But mm -hmm. toxyethanol is a neurotoxin and uh, it's associated with harm. Uh, companies are moving away from it, uh, but we think it's better not to go from butoxyethanol to hexoxyethanol, as some companies have done, but to get rid of these VOCs altogether. And that just means you have to be more mindful of what uh, surfactants you use. You need a surfactant that um, uh, does not form streaks or films. And there are some very good surfactants out there with that property. So, so the reason that these harmful VOCs uh, have been incorporated to begin with, and they're usually things like small alcohols, uh, is because of their surfactant properties. And the issue is to try to find something that's streak-free because that's the performance characteristic that consumers care a lot about. So you sort of focus your your development efforts on something like that? That's exactly right. And what we try to do is come up with a uh, bio-based non-VOC formula that works comparably to a conventional product. We, we sort of look at the intersection of price, performance, environmental impact, and human health impact to optimize the, that intersection. So we have some very strict rules around how we formulate, such as having no VOCs, being bio-based, making sure all of our ingredients are biodegradable, et cetera. Uh, and then we work to be as close to the performance of a comparably priced brand as we can get. Because if you know, we don't perform well, people won't buy the product. It's mm -hmm. that simple. I have a, a question. This is not very relevant, but I'm, I'm curious. Do you know if what the smell is of bleach? I think it's the hypochlorous acid, HOCl. Ah. Uh. Yeah, that would make sense. Mm -hmm. That would make sense. Okay. One more aside. Um, I think you must be getting to be, uh, companies like Seventh Generation must be getting uh, to be a lot more well-versed in certain classes of compounds, like I suppose 
polyols or um, I, I don't know what the chemical composition is of these, you know, replacements that you find for VOCs, for example. But I imagine you're getting to be the experts on the, that kind of chemistry. And do you, how do you back communicate that to, let's say, you know, educators at the organic chemistry level? for example, myself. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so uh, I hate to say it, but I really don't. <laughs> I primarily go back up our supply chain and speak to our suppliers, uh, you know, the, the surfactant manufacturers and tell them what the characteristics we're looking for are. Uh, and you know, 20 years ago when we were doing that, it was all very new and they were developing new chemistries for us, but now it's more uh, uh, common, maybe even de rigueur in some places. So they are now coming to us with their iterations of uh, not polyols, but uh, glucosides, you know, things that have a sugar backbone rather than a polyol or an ethoxylate backbone. Uh, or uh, alkyl groups that come from various uh, seed oils like um, coconut or palm instead of coming from a Ziegler catalyst. So uh, there's definitely been a shift in the industry as companies like Seventh Generation have become more successful. And one of the things we've always done is said, we're not looking for any, uh, and this is changing, but uh, back in the day, we were not looking for any exclusivity arrangements with companies. Rather, we wanted the technology to be available because if it was more sustainable, other companies using it would make our industry and thus humankind more sustainable. So we wanted to see these things get developed and broadly used, not just by us. So you would celebrate if they took up a bigger share of the market for a given chemical product. And indeed they are. So we are celebrating. Cool. I would like to um, have you just tell our listeners where the name seventh generation comes from. I forgot. This is something I know, but not everybody knows it. So it. It comes from the Iroquois Confederacy Great Law. So in the 17th century, uh, I believe it was six Native American tribes formed an economic confederacy called the uh, Iroquois Confederacy, now called the Haudenosaunee. And they have a great law, a constitution. And one of the laws is in our every deliberation, we consider the impact of our decisions on the next seven generations. And that was proposed by an early employee of the company and has been taken up. And <laughs> we try very hard to uh, live up to that very high standard. Right. A little bit on that line while we're there, can you talk just briefly about what a B corporation is and how that affects your ability to you know, advocate for the kind of developing the kind of products with the kind of qualities that you want to develop and sell? Oh, that is, I'm so glad you asked me that question. Uh, so as I mentioned, I had my own company called Cambridge Analytical Associates and uh, CAA, like every company in the United States has to incorporate typically in a state. Uh, and part of the articles of incorporation include a commitment by the board of directors to have a fiduciary responsibility to the shareholders. And when these incorporation laws were passed in the 1930s, in the wake of the Great Depression and the uh, collapse of the stock market, where there was a lot of abuse of investor funds, it made a lot of sense. However, having a fiduciary responsibility solely to shareholders means that boards don't consider employees, they don't consider the communities where the companies work, they don't consider the environment. And hence, you run into uh, modern capitalism where much is done to increase shareholder value 
but at the expense of the common, all of the resources that should be available to all people like clean air and clean water. So uh, in the early 2000s, uh, a group of companies, and I'm proud to say Seventh Generation was one of them, chartered what are called B or benefit corporations. And in the Articles of Incorporation, there is now a requirement that the board of directors consider a fiduciary responsibility to shareholders and employees and communities and the environment. And I really think that is the path to make business a force for good, as so many people say business should be and can be. But I think uh, all states should abandon the current C corporation and make all companies reincorporate as B corporations, because then we would see some really exciting changes. Yes, bravo. Do you get any tax advantages out of it or does it, does it, uh, how does it incentivize, you know, actually looking to each one of those? Cause not all of those stakeholders make you money. Uh, how do you, how do you keep uh, accountability to yourself as a B corporation? It would be wonderful if there were tax advantages, but there are not, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, and companies uh, and their boards have to balance their commitments, recognizing that particularly in this day and age, companies that show a commitment to the environment and to uh, having a purpose beyond making money tend to be companies that uh, grow more strongly and consistently than companies that have a commitment only to shareholder value. So it's a, it's a definitional change that can signal to other potential shareholders more about about what your company is about. Exactly, and there is an organization called B Labs uh, that audits B corporations. Uh, I think we're now in the middle of our audit that looks at how you treat your employees, that looks at how you manage your supply chain, that looks at your environmental footprint to make sure that you're still living up to the uh, commitments that you've made as a B corporation. And that's a, that's a governmental regulatory kind of audit, or is that put together by volunteers within the B-Lab? B-Labs uh, is a non-governmental organization. So it is an audit by this NGO. Gotcha. Neat. Great. Let's move on to talking about the actual products. Cleaning products are the primary way I've bought seventh generation products for over 30 years now. <laughs> the one that comes to mind is, well, actually both laundry detergent and dishwashing detergent. I presume they are both sulfonates. Is that so, correct? So yes, both laundry liquid and the dish liquid contain a sulfate, not actually a sulfonate. And I actually buy the powder, so that's the same for the powder, right? So actually, the laundry powder does not contain a uh, sulfate. It's an alcohol ethoxylate. Oh, okay. <laughs> Interesting. So let me just say a little bit about the chemistry of a sulfonate. So sulfate is a sulfur with four oxygens around it. And the A-T-E suffix means that it's an ester. Instead of a hydrogen bonded to one of those oxygens, like you would have in sulfuric acid, you would have it bonded to an, an alkyl chain, which Jamie and I like to call grease. So, so it's, it's a greasy chain that's hydrogen and carbon, a hydrocarbon. And a sulfonate is actually similar, except it instead of making that ester bond, it actually has a direct bond from the sulfur to the carbon chain, okay, which is more stable than a sulfur-oxygen bond. Sulfur-oxygen bonds can be hydrolyzed or broken with water. So detergents are surfactants. 
and surfactants are uh, ways to dissolve greasy things in water. So you have this waterphilic, hydrophilic um, end, which is the sulfonate, and then this greasy tail, which in a water solution, it forms the inside of a bubble and it surrounds dirt particles and makes them soluble in water. So you, you need to have this hydrophilic head group called a sulfonate. And I just want to find out like what your, what your source of the alkyl tail, and then do you buy the, the chemical from a supplier, from a manufacturer? Or do you manufacture these things on site? So I'll, I'll start with the last question because it's so easy to answer. And that is we purchase all of our ingredients. Okay. Uh, there are a variety of uh, suppliers worldwide and we buy from them. To get to the first part of the question, the alkyl or uh, oil liking part of the molecule we use comes from a vegetable oil. It can be coconut, more typically it's what they call palm kernel oil. Uh, so you start with the oil, fatty oil that's been typically expressed or squeezed out of an oil seed like the palm kernel or the coconut. And then it is um, transesterified so that it's no longer a triglyceride uh, fat, uh, and then it is reacted with the sulfate group. So you now have an alkyl sulfate. Is it a, a sulfate or a sulfonate? For our work, it is sulfates. Yeah. So okay. many, many companies, uh, the conventional companies in particular, use sulfonates. Uh, they're typically aryl alkyl sulfonates, like alkyl benzene sulfonate, um, but we use an alkyl sulfate, like laurel sulfate. And well, typically what's it's, the advantage of that uh, for, the, for what, the environment? So the advantage is it is highly biodegradable. To your point, the uh, sulfate group is uh, hydrolyzable. And uh, then the alkyl chain that's left is very familiar to about this, but um, circularity is very important to us. And that means that the resource that's available to us today needs to be available to future generations. And that's one very common definition of sustainability. And that's achieved through circularity. So you start with a plant oil, make a chemical that can be uh, biodegraded to create nutrients that become plant oils. Uh, and you can do the cycle on infinitum. So that is, that is the advantage we see in it. Yeah, that's really great. At the time when I started buying um, detergent, seventh generation detergent, uh, other brands had phosphates. So I want to talk about eliminating phosphate and what what what's the point of that why do you do that so uh this this is actually near and dear to my heart because it is the first issuer actually went out and provided testimony to state legislatures to pass laws to ban phosphates but uh phosphates are very common in the environment they are a plant nutrient and typically are the limiting factor in the growth of plants and algaes in lakes, streams, and ponds. So if you start adding phosphates into the environment, um, plants like algaes and rivers, lakes, ponds uh, start to bloom and uh, the water becomes greenish, very unpleasant to swim in. So you lose recreational value. And when the algae dies off, um, bacteria start to decompose it, use up all the oxygen and you get fish kills. So, you know, people who fish lose that additional recreational value and it's unpleasant. <laughs> well, it's also 
you know, we can actually lose whole species if we hadn't been, if we hadn't converted away from phosphates, we could lose fish species entirely. And that, that would have been bad. I have a rumination, a chemical rumination. We've talked about nitrogen being the elemental limiting nutrient in a lot of uh, plant growth. So is it fair to kind of generalize that nitrogen is more a limiting element on land and that phosphorus is more a limiting element in the water? And is that possibly related to how insoluble phosphates are, phosphate salts? So I'm not enough enough of an expert to know the answer to that question, but I typically associate phosphate eutrophication with inland bodies of water, fresh water, and nitrogen with soil and saltwater estuaries like uh, the Chesapeake, where nitrogen loading from animal production is an issue. As you know, animal waste also contain a lot of phosphates, so I'm not sure which one is the actual limiting. So I think phosphates are quite soluble, Jamie. Are they? Yeah, we use phosphate buffers all the time in the lab for growing bacteria. Well, I'm thinking like, for example, lead phosphate and the fact that, you know, uh, with flint. Oh, but that's not what (laughs) the form is that we'd be concerned about here. No, but if if metal phosphates are low in solubility. Yeah, but it's mostly sodium and potassium phosphate, which are very soluble. Oh, well, I guess if there's plenty of that around. I think the reason that nitrogen is so limiting on land is, is, you know, the, the form of nitrogen. We talked about this with Tony Flacavento and the fact that you need legumes to convert it into the reduced form, the ammonia form. But phosphate used to be more limiting on land. And I think mostly it's now just from the application of so much inorganic fertilizer that phosphate is no longer limiting, at least on his land. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if I have it right, but that's, that's my thoughts on the matter. Most fertilizers are NKP, nitrogen, potassium, yep. and phosphorus. Mm-hmm. Let's see. I wanted to talk about the other additives besides your sulfate detergents. And what else goes into your cleaning products, just in general terms? So typically, uh, for a laundry detergent, you have the surfactant as the major soil removal Uh, substance. Uh, And it's particularly, or they're particularly good at removing grease stains and things of that nature. Then there are stains that are refractory relative to uh, surfactants, things like blood, grass stains, uh, wine, where enzymes are used. And because enzymes are catalytic in nature, a small amount goes a long way. And in fact, enzymes are increasingly replacing surfactants as the cleaner of choice in detergents because you can use much less material. In addition to that, for the surfactant... Can I ask about the enzymes? I know that like Genentech used to be developing a very high heat stable protease, you know, I think it was a cysteine protease for laundry detergent because people used to use it in hot water and and that was standard. And so the idea was, well, let's just create a heat stable enzyme. Do you use genetically modified enzymes that are tailored to, and are they recombinant? How do you go about getting the enzymes? So the answer is yes and no. We have some enzymes that are produced using non-modified bacteria or yeast, and we have some enzymes that are uh, produced from genetically modified uh, E. coli or other microorganisms. So both are, are used in our products. It's interesting that you mentioned high temperature enzymes because we are 
not just seventh generation, but the industry generally is looking at lower temperature uh, washing because of the greenhouse gas emissions associated with hot water. Uh, the heating of water is actually the biggest contributor by far to the environmental footprint of laundry detergents and certain dish detergents. So if you can wash in cold water, you can significantly reduce the greenhouse gas footprint. So oh, that's, that's really interesting. I, I've washed my clothes in cold water for a long time, but I don't think there's even a cold water setting on my dishwasher. <laughs> There, there isn't. Dishwashers heat the water themselves, and uh, that's that's where they get their elbow grease from. Is the hot water? Yep. And, and some have a sanitized cycle, which heats it even higher yeah. uh, than the standard 140 degrees or so. I actually have a solar water heater on my roof, and so it it actually helps the dishwasher if it starts with hot water coming out of my hot water heater. It's not all the way there. I actually have a booster on the hot water heater that's a on-demand gas booster. I was just going to say that sounds like a really nice setup. Yeah. Martin, I, w- I wanted to ask with the enzymes, if you try to avoid sensitizers, and how do you kind of walk that line with something like enzymes for ingredients? Because I know in the UK where I was in grad school, the way that they advertised it. I think they do it differently in America, but um, it was bio and non-bio detergent and the bio detergent had enzymes and some people who had sensitive skin, you know, in order to avoid the bio-based <laughs> catalyst uh, would would buy the, the non-biological one for that reason. Yep. So uh, here, of course, the term biological is not widely used. Uh, We have enzymes in our products and we disclose that in our ingredient statement. So our our philosophy on sensitizers and allergens is that they need to be disclosed on pack as part of the ingredient disclosure. So our statement is we disclose all added ingredients. So we'll say we have enzymes. We indeed at one point made an enzyme-free laundry detergent for sensitive skin, but frankly, it didn't sell that well. People in this country don't seem to be as sensitive to the protease as in the UK. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just going to ask about that because the proteases are what are likely to be the sensitizers, not lipases or what else would you have in there? We use amylase. Amylase. I actually did my PhD on an amylase inhibitor. So an amylase is breaks up starch, which is a polysaccharide of string of sugars. Lipases break up fats and make them water soluble. And proteases break up proteins just so that we get those three classes. So you you know kind of use all three enzyme classes but i assume am i correct that the proteases are the main sensitizers i believe that's the case yes i do know that dust mites what what people what including me are allergic to in dust mites is actually a cysteine protease that they spit out to digest human skin <laughs> or whatever. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's really gross. Dust mites are really gross. So most of the dust in our house is is human skin cells, dead human skin cells. And so the dust mites actually spit out a, a cysteine protease, and that's what you're allergic to in the dust. Not your own not your own skin. Um, not the dust itself, but the dust mites hmm. protease. <laughs> Interesting. (laughs) There are other issues with dust these days, as I'm sure you know, dust coming from uh, old furniture and uh, foam cushions containing uh, brominated uh, uh, fire retardants. Yeah, we had a whole episode. Oh, okay. (laughs) And and, and the dust around electronics is, is some of the current, you know, worst offending dust. 
So everybody, if you're looking for, you know, life tips out of this podcast, you know, there's one. Make sure that you adequately dust with a streak-free but uh, non-VOC cleaning product around your computers <laughs> as you work at home. Well said, Jamie. <laughs> well said. Do you, do you have a, com- a computer, a, an electronics cleaning product? No, a- we don't. <laughs> okay. You can use our free and clear glass cleaner. That's what I would use. Okay. Right. That and a, an electronic uh I'm sorry, an electrostatic microfiber cloth. Right. Yeah. I just tend to use a little bit of rubbing alcohol (laughs) on those microfiber cloths. Mm -hmm. I Um, tend to do that too. VOCs. (laughs) Yes. VOCs. Yeah. True. True. So can, can, can I ask my question about consumers and how you, how you educate them about uh, your chemicals and, what's good and what's not. Um, I imagine that this advocating for disclosure from companies is a big part of it, you know, but you have, it seems like you work on both prongs, you know, both fighting for companies to reveal what's in their products. And at some point we have to, you know, educate consumers about what those chemicals mean. Sure. So I have to start with the qualification that I'm a chemist. I'm not a marketer. And so I can tell you my understanding, but I cannot give you a truly in-depth description of some of the things that we do and and how they work. First, I'll start with the difference between what we fundamentally do in terms of advocacy and what's called cause marketing. Many companies will ask what are causes that our clients may be interested in such as birds contaminated by oil from an oil spill or world hunger or poverty in in the U.S., whatever the issue is, they may have a campaign and they'll associate a product with it. So if you buy our product, we will make a donation in support of this cause. But it's not necessarily core to how the business functions or to the business philosophy of the company. It is a cause they want to support because they believe their consumers support it. And this builds what's called brand equity with their consumers. Seventh generation takes a different approach. We begin by asking what is a cause that is very important to us. So for several years, we've advocated for a consumer right to know. Until recently, cosmetic products, uh, personal care products like shampoos, had to list all of the ingredients on the bottle, but cleaning products did not. So if you picked up your shampoo, you could see all of the different ingredients. If you picked up your cleaning product, You were lucky if it said contains anionic and non-ionic surfactants and enzymes. Good point. (laughs) So seventh generation starting, well, in 2002, we were listing all of our ingredients online. And in 2007, I believe it was, we started listing all of our ingredients right on the product label. And this included all of our fragrance ingredients, which is still not required for cleaning products or for personal care products. In any event, because letting the consumer know what's in the product was so important to us, we advocated for this. So we would run full page ads in the New York Times saying, you have a right to know. We would go to state legislatures and advocate for passing bills. We would write blogs. So we use social media to reach out to our consumers and ask them to write their legislators to support disclosure of cleaning product ingredients. And our success has been linear over time. In 2010, we got the industry to agree to a voluntary communication standard in which they disclosed their ingredients online. And then in 2017, the state of California passed the Cleaning Products Right to Know Act of 2017, which became effective in 2020, requiring all cleaning product manufacturers to list all intentionally added ingredients on their labels and 
put many other ingredients, including fragrance ingredients, on their websites. So that was a big victory for us, and we're very excited about that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Wow. That, that's the difference between conventional cause marketing and what we call advocacy marketing. But that answers a, a big question of how do you reach uh, consumers with, with educating them as you first make that information available and you know, how do you make it available? It's got to be on the product that they buy. That's, that's really great. So you focused on California because it's a very big market. And if they have to sell in California, then they might as well formulate things that way or? So there were two, well, several factors, but two of the big factors were one, the size of the market, because yes, as California goes, so goes the nation. Companies are not going to make special products or special bottles just for California. It's uh, much easier to make one product and sell it to all 50 states. New York is another state that we look to because of the size of its population and Texas. You know, just as an aside, the NRDC, Natural Resources Defense Council, took that same strategy many years ago when they were trying to get manufacturers to sell more energy efficient appliances and they targeted the state level especially in California but they had all these state level regulations climbing through their legislative process and all of the appliance manufacturers panicked and said we don't want a patchwork so they got together and said Let's get a federal one. So they actually lobbied for a federal standard for energy efficiency. The, the manufacturers did. And that's how Energy Star was born then. Yes. Wow. Cool. Same thing with the phosphate ban on auto dish detergents. Uh, we advocated at the state level. Uh, I remember going to Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, finally Washington State in 2006 passed a phosphate ban. And once that one state passed the phosphate ban, other states did, and the entire industry went to a voluntary ban across the entire industry rather than face a patchwork of different laws across the country. So it can be an effective strategy. Yeah. Wow. I'd like to come back to the amounts of cleaning products that you use. My, what I notice is that you have a much smaller scoop in your powdered laundry detergent than other big name brands. And that is great because what I've been told, even by chemists who work for those other big companies, is that they are the amount, the suggested amount is really overkill. It's made for a full load of a car mechanic's dirty, you know, greasy overalls. And then you put a, a cup, a full scoop of detergent in there. And so I, I have cut back and cut back and cut back on the amount. And I even like, if I use a half load of laundry, I use a half scoop of seventh generation. So it seems to me like you have that in mind in your products as well, is instead of pushing people to use more, you encourage them to use the right amount. Well, definitely we would encourage people to use the right amount, but we have to calibrate against something. And and that is the cleaning power of uh, a standard. And frankly, the industry standard is uh, tied. That is the most popular as well as one of the most effective products in the marketplace. So what we try to do is formulate our product to have an equivalent cleaning power to Tide. And I'll even admit we don't quite make it. Uh, We try to get as close as we can, but they are really good. And they have an efficient supply chain, so they're good at a reasonable cost. So we have to be mindful of the cost as well as performance. Wouldn't you say, though, that that you need less Tide and you need less of everything than the scoop provided typically? Yes. So uh, again, Tide recommends a certain amount of their laundry powder, laundry liquid, or 
they'll tell you use one of their pods. And, and that has a certain cleaning power. When we make a recommendation to use a certain amount of liquid, it's to achieve a comparable cleaning power. Okay, so that's standard. And that amount has changed prior to 2000, just to make sure I get my dates uh, not too messed up. Uh, the standard was about three ounces of laundry liquid. And then uh, Unilever introduced a product called All Small and Mighty, which only required one ounce of material. So it's what we call a 3X concentrate because you're using one ounce instead of three ounces. Procter & Gamble then introduced a 2X concentrate. So you only needed one and a half ounce and that took over the market and everyone, all manufacturers of laundry detergent shifted to this one and a half ounce formula. Uh, seventh generation, a bit later, came out with what we called a 4X formula. So it only required about three quarters of an ounce. And we just introduced something called Easy Dose, which only requires three eighths of an ounce. So it's what we call an 8X formula. And it comes with an automatic dispensing bottle so that because it's such a small amount, you just have to invert the bottle and squeeze it gently and it ejects the proper amount of material. Interesting. So a dash of detergent. <laughs> exactly. There's the eight, the teaspoon, and then there's the pinch of detergent. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. And to avoid overuse, we have the automatic dispensing because it would be very easy to to use too much. Well, this brings us to the concept of packaging. And I know seventh generation is trying to make completely recyclable and to encourage complete recycling because just making it recyclable doesn't necessarily mean that people do it. Can you speak about your packaging? So that package sounds kind of complex. <laughs> so our packaging goals, and we established these goals, oh, back in 2012 or 2013 for 2020, was that all of our packaging would be made out of either a bio-based or a recycled material, i.e. something that had been used before, and would be recyclable, or in the case of paper, uh, if it wasn't recyclable, could then biodegrade so that you have that circularity that I described before. So I'm going to stick to plastics just for a moment. We want it to be 100% PCR and we want it to be 100% recyclable. So as we finish 2020, I don't have the final numbers yet, but we are in the mid to upper 80% range in use of PCR in our packaging. We didn't quite make our 100% goal. And PCR? PCR is post-consumer recycle. That means it... It's not the test that they do for COVID. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, that's the polymerase chain reaction. Right. I guess it could be. <laughs> um, so the recyclable packaging is somewhere between 97 and 98%. So we almost met that goal. But then we realized, as we were thinking about our 2030 goals, that to your point, uh, it's great that our material is recyclable, but that's not the same as actually having it be recycled. So our goal for 2030 is that all of our packaging is made from recycled materials, is recyclable, and is recycled so that it actually gets put in a bin or it gets reused in some way. And this gets back to advocacy because right. we have to, one, make sure the infrastructure exists for recycling, that it's convenient to use and that consumers use it. So this is where we go beyond just making a product and packaging, but also work to change the system of commerce so that can address these issues like global warming or recycling, which a company cannot do on its own. It needs many, many players in the society. If we had time, I would love to ask you about the toxic substances 
control act and and how it limits or how it shapes how you can use chemical byproducts or waste products you know recycled chemical goods in to new products because at, at a at a recent ACS green chemistry conference that Felicia and I both went to we went to a very interesting discussion about how companies that are trying to incorporate recycled chemical streams into their manufacturing stream face this hurdle of you know it is now governed as a as a chemical wastes product and it seemed like that is a regulatory challenge right now is in America how to legally build a company manufacturing from recycled goods yeah, the, the problem is to your point the fact that we allow hazardous materials into our our products. And if we got rid of those hazardous materials through Tosco or through other regulation, then we'd be more capable of uh, recycling them without the sort of concerns you just raised. Thank you. Thank you. I have one more thing I want to talk about, and that's your paper products. But there's an, a related issue that I forgot to bring up with detergents and that is bleaching. Do you have any bleaching ingredients like peroxide? So we do sell what we call a non-chlorine bleach, which is hydrogen peroxide, roughly three to 4% in, in water. So yes. And it's just separate? It's not part of the detergent formulation? We also include, I believe it is percarbonate in our laundry powder. And in our auto dish powder. So those percarbonate is an extra oxygen on carbonate. So that extra oxygen is not very tightly bound and it can react with dirt or stains and wipe them out, erase right. them. It's a bleach. Exactly. And actually, I was going to say that when you talked about blood stains that Fresh blood stains come out really well if you just put a little bit of 3% hydrogen peroxide, household concentration hydrogen peroxide on it, and it, it just oxidizes the blood and takes it right out really easily. It doesn't work quite as well for dried blood, but you know if it's relatively fresh that day, then it'll, it'll work really well. I know that alkyl peroxides are used in Tide because I went to a talk by a Tide chemist a long time ago, and they went to a great deal of effort to figure out what the best alkyl chain and so on. So maybe that's one of those ingredients that helps Tide be just a little bit better, but it's not worth it. It's so many ingredients that are potentially hazardous. And I think it's worth it to buy seventh generation that is non-hazardous. Well, thank you. So I just have a question about bleaching the paper products. So we use a process uh, called oxygen bleaching. And also, I can't remember the exact chemical, but it's a, a sulfur compound. Um, oh, is it a peroxysulfate? I don't think it's a peroxysulfate. No, there's a home dye remover whose name RID, R-I-D, and mm -hmm. it uses uh, some sort of a thio compound, and it's a reductive bleaching rather than uh, an oxidative bleaching. So we use these bleaching processes. Like a sulfite? Yes, some sort of a sulfite. It's a sulfite or a metabisulfite, maybe. I think it might be a metabisulfite, yes. Metabisulfite's a new one for me. Oh, yeah, we didn't talk about what that was. Metabisulfite has a, I believe, a sulfur-sulfur bond. It's, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it can be oxidized by other things. So that means it's a reducing agent. So yep. it can it can be oxidized up to sulfate. Mm -hmm. Exactly, and, and hence it's uh, what I refer to as a reductive bleach rather than an oxidative right. bleach. Yep. And, and we use those instead of uh, chlorine or chlorine dioxide bleaching. And 
The reason is that when you use chlorine and to a lesser extent chlorine dioxide, you form chlorinated hydrocarbons, chlorinated phenols, VOCs like chloroform, uh, all of which have uh, hazardous aspects, just like the uh, disinfecting byproducts you get from uh, water treatment with uh, hypochlorite. So we try to avoid those bleaching processes and use oxygen bleaching. At one time, we actually had an unbleached paper. And uh, in fact, we now still have a brown paper towel that's uh, unbleached. So if if you're, in fact, I like the color. Yeah. I think it adds character. (laughs) I buy the unbleached coffee filters. For sure. Yeah. Uh Because I certainly wouldn't want bleached byproducts in my coffee. Exactly. We don't want them in the environment generally. Right. So. No. And I want my coffee as dark as possible. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think that's all I have. So, Jamie, you have one more question. Following on what the discussion of, you know, performance and, you know, these alkyl peroxides. So I had a friend, she's also a, a scientist and she loves your products. And I said, you know, I'm going to have this conversation with the director of sustainability for seventh generation. What would you ask him? And, and she brought up the fact that I think a lot of people are maybe on the fence this year. Uh, if they tend to use natural products for their cleaning products, uh, you know, with the COVID pandemic, and perhaps some people need to be reassured that um, these cleaning products are as effective at destroying a coronavirus as normal business as usual cleaning product. Have you tested your your disinfectants, your cleaning products against coronavirus, or are your products listed on that EPA list? of? We are on the EPA uh, list N, as it's called, of products uh, believed to be effective against coronavirus. And that is true for any product on that list. EPA has confidence and has seen evidence that the substance will eliminate the coronavirus. So if it's on that list, whether it's natural or synthetic, you can have confidence that it, it removes the coronavirus. That said, I also want to point out that the coronavirus is an airborne pathogen, that the primary route of exposure is inhalation, and that disinfecting surfaces, while it does give you some additional confidence, does not protect you to any great extent because there's very little risk of exposure from contact with the surface. And if you do touch a surface, the better approach is to wash your hands with plain soap and water. So yes, if you're in a environment with immune compromised individuals or someone who has coronavirus and there's a need to specifically remove it, use a list end material, whether it's a natural disinfectant or synthetic, but recognize wearing masks, ventilation, and other methodologies to avoid the inhalation of particles contaminated with coronavirus is what you really need to be doing. Okay. I usually read a haiku from Mary Soon Lee's Elemental Haikus for this podcast. Sulfur, gunpowder's slaughter, fire and brimstone, damnation, penicillin's grace. Oh, as with aluminum, my first version of a haiku for sulfur played on its spelling variants in British and American English. Sulfur, sulfur, S. Disrupted first grade. Popping stink bombs, starting fires. Still can't spell your name. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. (laughs) That's wonderful. Although sulfur-free varieties of gunpowder now exist for centuries, sulfur was a critical component. Brimstone is an old name for sulfur. The phrase fire and brimstone found in the King James Version of the Bible conjured up the torments of hell. On a more positive note, sulfur is one of the chemicals, she should say elements, in penicillin. So she has a little explanation of her haiku at the end. I, I think they're wonderful. I really like that. <laughs> I chose sulfur because of all our talk about sulfates and 
metabisulfites and all the sulfur that goes into your products. Oh, that, that was a lot of fun. I really like the haiku, and I'm I'm now tempted to write a sulfidate haiku. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this has been This Week in Sustainability, and our guest today was Martin Wolf of 7th Generation. We had a delightful talk about all the cleaning products that they put out, as well as their consumer-oriented education and environmental striving to reduce risk by eliminating the hazard, not just our exposure to the hazard. And we talked about sulfates and packaging and paper products bleaching. And so I just want to say our thank you again to Martin Wolf. Yes, thank you, Martin. It was really my pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Oh, I just want to say that I post uh, links to a variety of resources. I'd encourage our listeners to go to thisweekinsustainability.podbean.com, which is where I post the show notes, as well as the show that you can then download anywhere to any of your podcast applications. My name again is Felicia Etzcorn at Virginia Tech, and I record, edit, and upload these podcasts. Our music is by Wendy Godley, and my co-host is Jamie Ferguson. I'll say good night, Jamie. Good night. Good night, Martin. Good night.